Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics featuring occasional injections of rumor and innuendo, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by author Stuart Brotman from Knoxville, Tennessee, author of a new book called The First Amendment Lives On. Peter Hanna from Chicago Kent College of Law and active in the ACLU. Joe Morris, former U.S. Justice Department official in the Reagan administration, and later on will be joined by Terry Martin, who is a candidate for Congress and involved with the Illinois Channel here in the state of Illinois, also a former journalist who's now running for political office. And Justin Kaufman will join us. He is a reporter for Axios Chicago, also a former talk show host, I guess still a talk show host, and again, a a great guest. That's the whole show. Uh, We're going to focus in the first hour uh, on the First Amendment because a new book has come out called The First Amendment Lives On. Stuart Brotman, uh, who was a professor at the University of Tennessee, he joins us uh, from Knoxville, Tennessee this evening. And we're also joined by Peter Hanna, who is a progressive, a frequent guest on this program from Chicago Kent College of Law, and our good friend uh, Joe Morris, a longtime conservative attorney and very active in Republican and conservative politics for many, many years, a former official in the Reagan administration. Uh, Stuart Brotman, welcome to the program. I'd like to begin by asking uh, the First Amendment is obviously is a huge subject. And uh, before we get to the specifics of your book, what under the title of the First Amendment, what is the biggest concern you have right now about the First Amendment? Well, probably uh, that people don't understand it well enough. And we certainly talk a lot about great American values, but we don't really uh, address the First Amendment as one of the great values of our country. We have American exceptionalism, and I would put the First Amendment very, very high on the list of attributes for the United States that makes America such an exceptional country. Peter Hanna, uh, as you look at the First Amendment, uh, are you worried about anything, or is everything okay? Uh, I wish I could say everything's okay, but you know I agree with what uh, Stuart said. Certainly, there is a lack of understanding about what what this is, what it does. But for me, one of the biggest uh, concerns about the First Amendment, and frankly, many of the the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights, is uh, the you know private enterprise's ability to, of course, you know my company or you know Twitter, or these private companies, they don't have to follow the First Amendment. So if the government influences uh, these private entities that host massive platforms. Uh, to act in ways that are contrary to the First Amendment, it's not technically going to necessarily be a violation of the First Amendment because it's just a private actor acting. I think that's going to be a bigger and bigger problem as time goes on. Uh, Joe Morris, uh, welcome uh, to you. And uh, what concern, if any, do you have about the First Amendment at the moment? Well, I agree that there's there's room for great concern. I differ in the notion that people don't understand the First Amendment. I fear that people understand the First Amendment all too well and don't like it. That is to say, there's always a residuum of, a, of an attitude in, in the part of people that I'm all for free speech for me, but not for you. And um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the, the glory of the First Amendment, I agree that it is precisely a core element of, of what we call American exceptionalism. It, what ma- it's an part, important part of what makes America America is that free speech protects things you disagree with. It, it protects people who are on the margins 
of the mainstream of opinion or outside the margins of the mainstream of opinion. And I agree uh, with Peter entirely that the question of the interplay between government and business, where you have business, in, particularly in the forms of the social media mm-hmm. and similar enterprises, uh, handling so much traffic of speech and expression these days, it's so easy for government to manipulate that by threatening adverse action, however subtly, and so to influence uh, businesses to shut it down. I think that's a serious danger. Stuart, do you agree with that? Well, I, I think we're talking about two different things. We're talking about the law of the First Amendment, and we're really not just talking about the First Amendment. We're talking about two of the elements. So the First Amendment really covers five freedoms, uh, including the free exercise of religion and the ability for people to assemble and to petition their government. So within the First Amendment, there are two other freedoms. And my book and my concern here is really free speech and free press. And over the years, certainly in the past century, we have had a number of cases that have been decided in this area in terms of what the Constitution uh, essentially supports for that. That's a legal matter. I think Mm -hmm. what Peter and Joe are talking about uh, is more a cultural and a social matter meeting the free speech and free press values that we as a society have, which may or may not be part of what the law has. So as Peter indicated, the First Amendment is really a prohibition for the government to essentially restrict free speech and free press. And when you talk about private enterprises, you're talking not about the legal aspect of the First Amendment, but talking about what we as a society would like to value in terms of free speech and free press. And sometimes those two issues get mixed up. Sometimes they should be mixed up, but also sometimes they should be separated. So it doesn't include what Twitter can say or not say. It doesn't include who owns Twitter or who doesn't own Twitter, in your opinion. That ba- well, it's basically, not my, it's not my well, opinion. Uh, no, no, it, 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 it's, it's really where the law it's is. It's the First Amendment, right. But I, I think it's quite clear, the Supreme Court has been quite clear in terms of drawing the lines of the First Amendment for purposes of our rule of law back to what the Founding Fathers were looking at, which was this notion of separating government power from the ability to restrict speech or press. Joe, Mar- uh, Joe Morris. Joe Morris. And well, then- well I, again, I agree mostly with that. I, I suppose there are there are two crucial caveats I have. One is on the interplay between law and culture. I mean, I certainly agree that there's a distinction, and it's very important to parse the law carefully. But I, I agree with Abraham Lincoln that public sentiment is in, incredibly important, and it is impossible to have a meaningful First Amendment or constitutional system if public sentiment, public opinion, the cult, the political culture behind it doesn't really support it. I mean, you can look at the old Soviet constitution, the Constitution, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It, it, it had amazing guarantees of civil rights, and they were, of course, meaningless because the political culture rendered them meaningless. The legal guarantees meant nothing. For the legal guarantees to mean something, there needs to be political con- culture behind them that gives them, gives them power. And the, 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 the second slight disagreement is it, it, I do think that the, the, uh, the question of government regulation of speech and press is implicated if the government is surreptitiously, secretly, or otherwise twisting the arms 
of the owners of the media of communication in order to e achieve indirectly or uh, surreptitiously the censorship that would be prohibited if it were done directly and overtly by government. That is, if government does it covertly through the instrumentalities of the private sector, I still think First Amendment law, as well as the political culture behind it, is, uh, is implicated. Peter, I know you want to respond to that. We do, we're do. we going into a break now, so think about your answer. Uh, sure. uh, 708-250, I'm sorry, <laughs> 1-800-723-8029. I'm not out my private number, even though we're talking about free speech tonight. I don't want it at 3 o'clock in the morning. 1-800-723-8029, from coast to coast and border to border. We're talking about the First Amendment this evening, and according to Stuart Brotman, it lives on, and we'll talk about that when we roll on from Elk Grove Village, Illinois. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm gonna make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor, check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. 
Learn more at LLS.org. We continue on Beyond the Beltway, and uh, Peter Hanna, you've had a few minutes to think about the answer to the last question, so go ahead. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I think I agree with a lot of what Stuart said, and I agree with a lot of what Joe said. Um, the real issue, I mean, the question of does the First Amendment apply to private entities, the answer legally, no. Um, the First Amendment, like many of the rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights, begins with Congress shall make no law. It applies to the government. But the you know the public square of today is very different from the public square at the time of the you know founding fathers i personally don't think i should forever this country should forever be bound to the will of slave owning aristocrats of 200 plus years ago who could never have conceived of a twitter or a facebook the modern public square which we all got to learn during uh, you know many lockdowns in the pandemic is largely digital um and there is no government run twitter Right. There is no you know, government run Facebook. These are private entities. So when the entire sort of public square for the exchange of ideas and the articulation of thoughts and, and free expression sort of collapses around a totally different modality than, you know, the park or the street, whatever, mm-hmm. it does raise questions. Right. What I mean, especially when you have Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, doing things at the behest of government. You know, we learned in the Snowden uh, revelations that many of these companies had provided the government back doors uh, for, you know, surveillance and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not really, a, you know, overreach or, or too crazy to think that they also do the government's bidding in other ways to restrict certain voices, to restrict certain messages, to limit the, uh, you know, proliferation of those messages. And the one thing I want, you know, your viewers to think about is think about the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure, right? The police can't just at a whim kick down my door right now and put a camera in and, and leave. But they can hire a private entity to surveil me in a way that, you know, they could never do. Mm-hmm. So there's a much bigger issue at play here, even bigger than the First Amendment, which is the government's ability to have effectively end runs around these rights that we have using private enterprises intermediary. In the First mm-hmm. Amendment realm, I think we've seen how mm-hmm. social media uh, can be tampered with. I mean, I think banning Donald Trump from Twitter, that's not a, a good thing. That's not a good thing for anybody, no matter how annoying you might find him or how distastefully you might find him. And it's not a good thing to have an ex-president unable to communicate using a social media platform uh, that reaches, you know, many millions of people who want to know what the guy has to say. I don't support him, but I take the view that the the, uh, private enterprise should not be making those decisions, not the way they are. Stuart, do you agree with that, that uh, uh, banning uh, uh, Donald Trump from Twitter was was a bad idea in, in a variety of ways? Uh, uh, yes and no. I think a lot of people overestimate Twitter's impact uh, or even how many people are on Twitter. Uh, but Twitter is not this massive medium at this point. Twitter is only about 20 percent of the country. And it's not, for example, when we had three television networks, which were about 90 percent of the country in terms of the television medium, which was obviously the most powerful medium that came into the home. Uh, Twitter is not even in the top five of social media today in terms of the people using it. So I obviously a number of people, many people use it, but I don't think it's quite as dominant a medium when you actually look at the numbers behind it. Do you think that the the role that they played in suppressing the New York Post's story 
on uh, Hunter Biden and his laptop. What is your reaction to the way in which big media, uh, both big media digital media and big media regular media, reacted to a story created by reporters, reputable reporters, at one of the oldest newspapers in the United States to completely squash and kill that story, to spike it so that nobody could read about it or few people could read about it? Well, now we're back into the freedom of the press aspect. And yeah. one of the glories of freedom of the press is that you have investigative reporters at the New York Post and elsewhere who are looking at these stories and obviously were able to get out these stories. They weren't able to get them out on Twitter, but they were able to get them out certainly on the New York Post and a variety of other websites. So these stories were not secret stories. They were ones that were the product of having a vigorous First Amendment free press, having investigative journalism. So I, I think that should be celebrated. Joe, how do you react to the whole New York Post uh, Hunter Biden laptop story? Uh, to, to the extent that the New York Times and the Washington <clears throat> Post exercising their own editorial judgments, for example, and the, 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 the major networks and the mm. cable networks and, and, and the like all decided they wanted to ignore it even if they wanted to ignore it precisely because they wanted to put their thumbs on the scale of the outcome of the election of 2020, uh, they're free to do that. But if lurking behind that uh, are government officials, uh, whether or not aligned with the, the White House of the day, uh, who are whispering in their ears, this is to your advantage, or if you, if you go in the other direction, it is to your disadvantage, that, that's a serious problem. That is government trying to do secretly what it may not do under the law overtly. And, uh, or for, former uh, intelligence executives being quoted by mainstream media and all the media that, that put the kibosh on the New York Post story, basically saying that this information, which was being disseminated by the New York Post, was Russian disinformation. I mean, if that wasn't a conspiracy of those 25 people, I don't know how you define it. Well, and the, the facts need to be investigated, of course, the extent to which those, quote-unquote, former government officials were, in fact, acting on the behest of current <clears throat> government officials, whether in the legislative or the executive branch. Uh, another excellent illustration uh, shifts over to the, the, all the discussions about the right approaches to the pandemic uh, mm -hmm. in the last two years. Uh, t take the illustration of the Great Barrington Declaration. The Great Barrington Declaration was a statement uh, by some pretty mainstream, pretty authoritative and qualified medical and other scientists who were taking issue with the strictures and the strategies that were proposed by the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control. And they were offering, you know, kind of scientific critiques of those approaches and throwing up perfectly serious ways in which science ought to advance itself by testing, experimenting, and you know, studying the data and determining what the data show. Uh, and they were, and, and, you know, part of the nature of science, again, propelled forward by the freedoms built into the American constitutional system, uh, including the First Amendment that we're celebrating tonight, uh, is is based on discussion, argument, criticism, and so forth. Let, you know, sorting out, teasing out what the data show, disagreeing about it, and letting the debate rage on. Well, uh, we have evidence that Anthony Fauci and others in government actively worked from within government, uh, trying to uh, encourage people in the private media to suppress discussion of the Great Barrington Declaration and similar kinds of debate. Now, that's, that, it seems to me, is a serious tinkering with the, with the First Amendment. It is, it is an attempt to undermine it by using the power of government to
to uh, to do indirectly through private media what government is not allowed to do directly, and that is censor or kill a debate. Uh, Stuart, do you buy that? That that's what uh, might have been taking uh, well, place? I, I, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know what the actual <clears throat> facts here are, but I, I think I think what Joe is suggesting is a phenomenon that is a, you know, a difficult phenomenon that we've seen historically, which is known as the raised eyebrow. And the raised eyebrow is when government uh, is sort of looking at things and the private sector is taking cues from the government. And we've seen that over a number of years. Uh, most critically, we've seen that at the FCC, particularly when you have broadcast stations which have licenses that depend on the FCC granting those licenses and renewing those licenses. And so occasionally we've had situations where an FCC commissioner or the FCC chairman will give a speech which essentially will sort of uh, raise an eyebrow with about the type of programming. Uh, we had a major area in the 1970s called topless radio, where there was a lot of talk radio in the afternoon that dealt with topics dealing with sexual intimacy. And that was something the FCC chairman did not like. And so he went out and gave his speech, essentially saying, this is not something that the FCC really looked favorably on. And the licensee essentially pulled the programming and that entire format went away in the United States for many years because of that one incident. So yes, I think there are examples where the, the government will raise the eyebrow and we can see what the consequences of that. I want Peter to jump in and then we're gonna go back to Joe. Peter? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I just keep thinking about as I listen to Joe and, and Stuart is that, you know, th this doesn't, we don't need to say, hey, the First Amendment applies to Twitter and, you know, uh, they can't ban people, et cetera. I think one of the, the biggest issues, well, well, two things. First, you know, Comcast, Disney, AT&T, Paramount, Sony, and Fox. Those six companies own approximately 90% of all American media. I think that problem speaks for itself, right? You have six companies controlling most of the media that Americans consume. I think that's a problem. I mean, I think it's, it's why a uh, man literally burned himself alive in front of the Supreme Court two days ago to protest climate change. And, you know, it's getting no coverage at all. Um, that's, that's the first thing. And then the second thing, to Stewart's point about Twitter specifically, and, you know, other people who think, well, I, you know, I've never been on Twitter. I don't really care about Twitter. It's only 20%. You know, there has to be a threshold at which it becomes a problem. Um, you know, what if it's 75% of Americans get their news from Twitter, 50%. So I, I think anticipating those problems and anticipating the fact that more and more Americans are getting, are looking away from those six media companies that are, you know, basically manufacturing consent nonstop and trying to find news and information from people they trust elsewhere um, I think it raises some some significant issues when Twitter can kill a story like the Hunter Biden laptop story. Although I, I think it's you know it seems overblown, and frankly, the most notorious thing to me about Hunter Biden is he failed at being the son of a prominent man successfully. I mean, that's that's to me the biggest story because all these all these guys were the sons of these prominent, powerful figures. I think everybody all would agree with that. Scared. Everybody would agree with that, Peter. We do have to pause. When we come back, I know Stuart's got a comment, and we're also going to talk a little bit about Hugh Hefner, who is the, uh, the idea behind Stuart's book. Don't go away.
This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Rooster went back. We continue with our guests, and uh, we are going to begin with Stuart Bratman. Stuart, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, and uh, we mentioned that you're a professor uh, of uh, media at uh, University of Tennessee in Knoxville, where you join us uh, this evening. But tell us a little bit more about your illustrious background. Well, I've served on a bipartisan basis in four presidential administrations. Uh, as Bruce knows, I was president and CEO of the Museum of Television and Radio. And uh, I have been a private uh, management consultant for many decades, advising companies of all sizes, not just media companies, but companies in telecommunications and information and 
sports as well and companies that finance them. Uh, I'm a lawyer by training and have a graduate degree and undergraduate degrees in communications uh, and have been immersed in the First Amendment, particularly free speech and free press uh, mm -hmm. for virtually all my adult life. Good. And I'm going to come back and talk about that and the book in just a second after we let uh, Peter Hanna wax philosophically about your illustrious career, Peter. Yeah, I'm also an attorney. Um, I have a background in technology. I have an electrical engineering background, um, but I've been practicing uh, for many years now, many more than I care to admit, uh, with a focus on um, you know constitutional issues, civil liberties issues, policing, um, privacy, and cybersecurity. And Joe Morris. Well, I'm a lawyer in Chicago. Um, I served, as you pointed out, in the Reagan administration in, in couple areas where they're sort of relevant. I was the chief of staff and the general counsel at the U.S. Information Agency, which did um, communications on an international basis uh, for our government. I was also an assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice under Attorney General Meese with a fair amount of responsibility for law enforcement and international mm -hmm. affairs as well. Uh, in my private practice, among other things, that, as, you, as you pointed out, the book we're that gives rise to our discussion tonight was uh, stimulated by the legacy of Hugh Hefner, although I'm I generally view myself as a critic of that dirty old pornographer. Uh, I've actually, I actually represented him and the company in the course of my career in, uh -huh. in some corporate litigation matters. Um, and uh, I, I um, view myself as a pretty close to being a First Amendment absolutist, uh, having been corrected uh, by two people who loom large in this, in this book, uh, I might say. Uh, I was on the other side of Skokie, the Skokie case, against the Nazis. As a very young lawyer, I represented the Anti-Defamation League of B'nai B'rith, uh, an organization with which I have a lot of interaction and, and participation in my life. Uh, but I opposed uh, David Goldberger, who was one of the honorees of the Hugh M. Hefner First Amendment Award des des described in the appendix to uh, uh, Professor Brotman's book. Um, and uh, I confess I was wrong, and David Goldberg was right. I was eventually persuaded by the rightness of David Goldberg's views on the First Amendment and that. Later, in another case, uh, in Chicago, I represented uh, veterans groups in suing the Art Institute of Chicago over in a flag case where, as a putative work of art, the United States flag was placed on the floor of the School of the Art Institute, and the public was invited to walk over it as an act of performance art. Uh, in a later, and I, I tried that case on behalf of the veterans, uh, much angered by this disrespect to our country and its traditions, mm -hmm. and that's, that's culture as opposed to law, but on, and I think on the culture I was right. But on the law, I was eventually persuaded by none other than Antonin Scalia, then Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, who had a flag desecration case that came up from Texas, which he decided firmly and, and dispositively in favor of the free speech rights uh, that were in, in, implicit in that case. And he persuaded me. That, 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 okay. So, so, so I'm, changed. <laughs> I am, uh, I am I'm on, my, on the road to Damascus. I've had, uh, <laughs> I've had my conversion experience. Uh, Stuart... Uh, Joe referenced uh, Hugh Hefner, and that, that really is the sort of the origin or the impetus uh, of your book. What was it about Hugh Hefner, and uh, it's called The First Amendment Lives On, is the name of the book, and it's conversations and commentary by a, a variety of uh, people who were involved in, in following the, the free speech uh, Hugh Hefner issue uh, and his legacy over, over the years. And uh, when the book was published recently, it was, it was on Hugh Hefner's 90, or what would have been Hugh Hefner's 96th birthday. So what was it about this case that prompted you to write the book? Well, if you see the subtitle, it says Conversations Commemorating U.M. Hefner's Legacy 
of enduring free speech and free press values. So the legacy are the Hugh M. Hefner First Amendment Awards, which were given out by the Hugh M. Hefner Foundation. Uh, and that uh, was founded, the awards were founded in 1979 by his daughter, Christy Hefner. Mm-hmm. And Christy is the legacy of U.M. Hefner. Mm-hmm. And she did it after a year of exhibiting around the country the papers of John Peter Zenger, who is a legendary figure in American history, probably world history, in terms of freedom of the press. So Zenger essentially was put on trial for libeling the governor of New York at that time, the territory of New York, and he was put on trial and was acquitted based on the principles that we now know as freedom of the press. This is pre-Constitution, pre-Bill of Rights. While the actual artifacts of his trial and his papers were available, at that point, the Playboy Foundation, which later became the Hugh M. Hefter Foundation, purchased those papers and then toured them around the country and started a national essay contest for high school students, what the First Amendment means to me. That went on for a year. And at the end of the year, Christy Hefter realized that this was such an important topic that it shouldn't just be a one-year or several-event activity, that every year there should be a series of First Amendment awards that are given out to a variety of people, not just lawyers or journalists, but people who essentially have been on the front lines of trying to preserve free speech and free press values. And so that's the legacy that really was created from obviously Hugh Hefner to Christy Hefner. And now there are about 150 people who have received the First Amendment Awards, as Joe referenced in the appendix of the book, every one of those winners is listed with a short profile. And the 2022 awards are going to be given out in September. So this is an activity which will just continue getting back to the who First gets Amendment. Them? Do, you know, do you know who gets them this year? Has that been decided? Uh, the deadline is May 1st. And that will be announced, I believe, probably in the late summer. Mm-hmm. Stuart, have this year's judges been announced yet? Uh, I believe, yes. I believe this year's judges have been announced. Do you happen to know who they are? There are some pretty uh, celebrated I, judges from year to year. Uh, there are. I, I, I know one of them is uh, Allison Stanger, who is from Middlebury College. And you may know her, jo- uh, Joe or Peter. Uh, she was involved in a pretty... Uh, ugly controversy, let's call it, when uh, a speaker was invited to her campus at Middlebury College, and he was essentially shouted down. And ultimately, when uh, Allison Stanger and the speaker needed to leave, they were both physically attacked. She suffered some neck injuries and other things. And she basically has stood up for the rights of <clears throat> controversial speakers of all political persuasions to be able to come to campus. In the in the last five years on this program, uh, whenever the First Amendment basically has come up for some discussion, either the focus of the program or tangentially involved in what our topic is that week, it always, it generally starts at a college campus. 
that somebody at a college campus has been booed off the stage, their invitation has been withdrawn. Are there other sectors of the country, Stuart, and I want everybody to jump in on this, are there other sectors of the country where these egregious attacks on the First Amendment are also happening that maybe just don't get the publicity and the notoriety of what might happen on a college campus. Peter, can you tackle that? Do you have any uh, insight into other areas that are susceptible to First Amendment manipulation? Um, I mean, I think I think there are a whole host of areas, um, you know, obviously in the university setting and any public square. I think one thing people don't often understand is that the First Amendment doesn't provide you with the right to be free from being called a jerk by lots of people or yelled down. You know what I mean? Ultimately, you know, if you're if I if I get up holding some, you know, swastika or something in Millennium Park, uh, the First Amendment doesn't protect me from having everyone who walked by shout, you know, curses at me. And, and I think we have to be careful to say, you know, a public forum means one thing, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, immunize you from uh, harassment or, you know, jeering or people responding to messages they might disagree with. Joe? Yeah. Well, the, the, the campus is a particularly instructive, uh, I, I think, place to look uh, because there are private universities as well as public universities. At the middle of this, and the discussion is very present in, in Stuart Brotman's book, uh, one, of the, one of the discussants involved in these conversations with him, in fact, the first listed on the cover, is Jeffrey R. Stone, one of my old teachers, at uh, my alma mater, college and law school, the University of Chicago, a private institution in Chicago where your program is, is based, uh, which uh, for half a century has had a very robust set of pro-First Amendment principles. I call them pro-First Amendment principles, following Stewart's earlier caution to make the distinction between the public-private distinction, because the University of Chicago is a private institution, not subject to the First Amendment, but it is embraced as a cultural matter. The values that are in, implicit in the uh, or, or explicit, really, in the in the First Amendment, but, but providing a, a set of rules, uh, and 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 Stuart in the book goes into some of this history, providing a set of rules that have been embraced by many public sector universities as well, where they're really embracing what they ought to what, what ought to govern them as a matter of law in any event. That is that is the First Amendment, and how these institutions then deal with attempts to restrict speech, including by force is very instructive for the rest of our society. We've got a pause, 1-800-723-8029. We've got some callers. You'll hear from them when we roll on. From beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois, I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. What if the music stopped? If the familiar voices were silenced? If there were no breaking news updates? What if your companion and connection to your community came with a monthly fee? 
Don't worry, we're free local radio with you wherever you go. Celebrating 100 years and looking forward to the next 100. We are broadcasters. Text radio to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on your local TV and radio stations. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive. But our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back, and thank you very much for joining us in hour number two this evening. Joe Morris will continue to stay with us, and we'll be joined by Terry Martin, and we'll be joined by Justin Kaufman, and we'll be talking more about what's happening in the world and uh, uh, challenges to the Disney Corporation and and uh, a little more on the First Amendment and a lot more on other issues as well. Let me mention also... Uh, uh, we have a flashback, which is a segment of our website. This is a, at uh, uh, beyondthebeltway.com. Uh, the flashback dips into the archives of this program and its predecessor programs. And uh, we will present to you an entire discussion, and it may be from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30, 40 years ago, because we've got lots in the archives. And uh, this week we're going to... Uh, play for you. In fact, it'll be on the air. It's actually, it's, it's available right now at beyondthebeltway.com under Facebook, under uh, Flashback, rather. And it is the discussion in the first show after the Senate confirmation of Justice Clarence Thomas. And you will have some interesting discussions. Longtime friends of this program know the name Thomas Roser, the late Thomas Roser, one of the leading conservative voices in this country for a long time, lobbyist, 
his voice is alive and well, and you'll hear that. Grace Kamekowitz, also from the National Women's Political Caucus, a regular on that program, will be there, and also Cornelia Tewitt and uh, Bruce Crosby, who was an activist uh, in the civil rights movement in Chicago. So again, those voices will join together for a discussion of what will it mean for the appointment of Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court. You may want to listen to it. Maybe some interesting words of wisdom there. Uh, speaking of words of wisdom, they usually come from the great Pacific Northwest. And Joy is listening to us in Spokane, Washington. Joy, <laughs> go ahead. You're on the air. Okay. This is maybe more of a question, um, but I ended up being in kind of the middle of email and text messages between an ex-brother-in-law and then a woman I knew from business school yeah. who has a, a transgender son. And we ended up getting stuck on words, and they're important words, but they really had different meanings for the two points of view of these people. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and transgender is just as an example. Um, but my ex-brother-in-law was upset with the attacks on J.K. Rawlings and such about the science. Mm -hmm. um, and so he started giving me very lengthy definitions of dimorphic. Um, my friend who has a transgender son, she is concerned about that her son, who's an adult, won't get um, health care. Um, she lives in Texas. Um, and so that word to her means something very different. Um, so... Um, and we saw it with the Supreme Court nominee to define woman. Um, you see it also with CRT. The words out there and the right has a very a certain definition. The left has something very different. Right. And people do want to shut up each other and they make judgments about it. Is there any way that that words can be better defined there's some way that there can be consensus on what people are talking about i think technology has made this worse and worse of a problem over time and memes and stuff let's before we run out of time uh let's let uh, joe tackle that and uh, then uh, peter and Stewart. okay joe well, I think the wonderful thing about a free society is that uh, we can have all kinds of debates about what words mean, and words can have fluid meanings over time, except in one context, and the one context in which they need to be fairly frozen is the law. Uh, here I hearken back to something Peter said earlier in the conversation where he was fretting about those dead white slaveholders who wrote the Constitution of 1787-1789. The really cool thing is we don't need to care about their characters or what they intended, what matters is the words they wrote. Uh, th this is what the originalism uh, movement in, uh, in legal jurisprudence uh, is about uh, for this last half century. It is, it, is about, it is about understanding that the words have a public meaning at the time they're enacted, adopted in a constitution, adopted in a, enacted in a statute, adopted by parties in private law, a contract, a lease, a will, or something else. Th those words have a fixed meaning, and we don't get to fudge them. The, the, the business of lawyers and courts yeah. is to dig in and figure out what they mean. But in the rest of society, we, we, we can have wide ought to have wide open debates, and that's precisely okay. what the First Amendment is intended to protect. Peter, do you agree with that? 
Yeah, I, I agree with everything Joe said. I, I just want to point out, I don't really fret too much about the founders. Um, I just don't really care about their intent and what they had in mind. I, I, I'm not going to live to the year 3000, I don't think. Um, but I can't imagine a society in the year 3000 speculating about what, you know, uh, Thomas Jefferson intended when he wrote XYZ or what this meant to the Federalist Papers. Uh, the world is changing uh, very rapidly. So I, I, I don't fret about them. I just don't think we should be anchoring our interpretations of the law to their intent. Stuart, a question to you. Uh, look into the crystal ball. Where will technology and the, the thirst for uh, civil uh, dialogue go next? Does it? Do you well, have? A, at, is there a happy yeah, ending to this story? Well, yeah, we're going into something called the metaverse, and so we are now in another wave of technology where the technology will be very immersive. There are things called virtual reality and other aspects where we will not just be talking or communicating by text, but really through entire experiences. And I think that will essentially mirror or replicate a lot of the problems and the issues that we have in what we might call real life. And so I, I think what will be interesting is to see how those problems evolve and whether or not the law or the culture decides that essentially they should be dealt with either as we do in real life or in an entirely different way. Stuart Brotman, thank you very much. The title of your book is The First Amendment Lives On. Thank you for joining us this evening from the University of Tennessee. Also, Joe Morris, thanks for being with us. You'll be back for hour number two. Peter Hanna, always good to see from you. have you on the program. We will continue with another full hour of Beyond the Beltway. It comes up right after the network news or whatever is going to fill the next seven minutes on your radio station. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. 
Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Chris Dumont back. Thank you very much for joining us on uh, this hour of our broadcast. And Joe Morris, uh, who is a conservative attorney, uh, formerly with the Reagan uh, Justice Department, he continues to join us. Uh, we are also joined by Terry Martin. Uh, Terry is a candidate uh, for Congress from Illinois' 13th District, and for many years he was the founder of Illinois Channel uh, in Illinois, which was sort of like our version of C-SPAN, and Terry spent time with the C-SPAN and covering Washington. So uh, this is an interesting guy. He's a he's a professional journalist who has decided that he can do a better job, and he's going to enter uh, as entered the Republican primary for Congress. So uh, we'll hear about his uh, transition. And also, Justin Kaufman joins us. He is the reporter in Chicago for Axios. Uh, he is also a talk show host and a uh, man about town in the Chicago media circles. And uh, uh, at least uh, Justin making his first appearance on Beyond the Beltway. Terry, I think you've been on once or twice before, but nice to have you with us. Uh, I, I want to begin about all of the brouhaha about Walt Disney, uh, the state of Florida, what they're doing, what, what Disney is trying to do, and what uh, the state of Florida is trying to do. And I'm going to begin with you, Justin, because uh, uh, this is kind of an interesting story, and you have an interesting background. Uh, you can weigh <laughs> in on just about every subject. So uh, what, what is it? What, what, what's, uh, who's going to win this battle? Is there a yeah, winner? well, I'm honored to be on the show. Joe, great to see you again, Terry. Great to talk. Uh, yeah, this is a story. You go to the Chicago guy first to talk about Florida politics. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I, you know, it's interesting because I think a lot of the headlines have been about, uh, you know, Disney being against the, uh, the, the, the family, the bill uh, that, that they, they've coined the don't say gay in Florida. Mm -hmm. But I think it has a lot more to do with the fact that in the opposition to Disney or to uh, the governor and that bill, Disney said they were going to stop political campaign donations. Right. And once that happened, that's when uh, Governor DeSantis, who got a lot of money from Disney, who's a major corporation in the state of Florida, that's when they said it's retaliation time. So I think it 
a lot of people want to say it's about the bill and it's, it's a blowback on the bill, but I think it's about the response to the bill in which Disney said we're going to stop giving money to political candidates. Terry Martin, what's, what's your view of what's happening in Florida? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think it's a pushback on the uh, woke agenda. And uh, you have a governor in DeSantis who has had enough. When they passed a bill and uh, the woke uh, Disney executives said, we're going to, you know, hop on board and be critical of what's going on. Uh, DeSantis had enough and said, you know, why should we be giving you guys this special status uh, to do what you're doing? When you're coming out being political, you're not operating this as a nonpartisan business entity. So, you know, if you're going to get in the political realm, you're going to be faced with some of the political realities. Joe Morris, so what's your take on this? Is there somebody right and wrong here? Well, let me say, but like Justin, I'm delighted to be on the air with Justin Kaufman and with Gary <laughs> Martin. I've been on both of their programs. They're, they're, they're great journalists. Yeah, they have their own programs. Yeah, so. Right. They have their own programs, and they're great journalists. I'm, I'm, th- I'm thrilled to be on the air with them uh, as, a, as your fellow guest. As they're with them as fellow guests of you. Um, there, there's so much to unpack here. I agree with uh, Justin that there is a sense in which this is payback, not just for Disney going off the deep end in terms of embracing the woke agenda. Terry's right about that. Uh, but, but but because of the games they play in internal Florida politics, uh, people paying careful attention will notice that this legislation doesn't take effect immediately. It takes effect something on the order of a year and more from now. Now, part of that can be explained by the fact that lots of adjustments have to be made on the ground in order to take over the local governmental functions that this D- Disney Company's entities have been mm-hmm. performing. Various local county and municipal governments and so on will need to step in and take over those those activities. But the other side of the coin is it also gives a lot of room for this legislation to be repealed or modified if Disney comes to its its census, so mm-hmm. to speak. Now, coming to its census, I agree with Terry. This is a wonderful slap in the face of a business that out- overreaches its own interests in the political sphere. You know, the, the, uh, Milton Friedman once famously said that the primary duty of a corporation is to earn money for shareholders, make a profit. For shareholders, yeah. and when when corporations get off the leash of, of working for their shareholders and the, the economic interests specifically of their shareholders, and start trying to influence politics and 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 culture in a specifically political way, and indeed with highly highly partisan overlays, they're inviting trouble, and it's time. To for shareholders and others to call them up short. When you when you have a corporation, again, this is generally perceived to be uh, one of America's most popular companies. Uh, its its characters are beloved. Once uh, one one that parents and grandparents like me trust yes. not to be woke. Oh I mean, yeah, you know, absolutely. Tr- I mean, trust trust to convey and, a certain and, kind of neutrality and, and innocence uh, to to the children we entrust to and, them. And and given Walt Disney's political background. Uh, he would be turning over in his grave with what his current executives are doing. But, Terry, uh, a question to you is, uh, in this particular case, as I understand the reading on it, is that uh, there were employees of Disney who are either gay or gay-friendly, and they were concerned that uh, their executives were being too silent when this uh, political movement was being, uh, you know, unleashed, they view on themselves. Um, d- does a corporation have any responsibility 
Obviously, the principal responsibility is to the shareholders, but do they have any responsibility to the employees and protecting their rights, either real rights or perceived rights? A corporation acts within the law, both under the law of the state they operate in and with under the Constitution. So the rights of the, of the uh, employees are the same rights of citizens. They are citizens of the state and of the nation. And so therefore, the corporation does not by itself have to be enforcing the rights of its employees. Those rights are assured under our court system, under our constitutional rights. Uh, and to what extent, you know, you, you can't uh, necessarily go to bat for every single identity issue that someone in the corporation has. Is Disney supposed to take up gun rights because there might be gun aficionados uh, as part of their employees? I think what Disney need, needs to do is run Disneyland as Walt Disney had. He wasn't wrapping himself up in political knots, uh, but he was saying, look, we have our rights, we have the courts, we have, that's what government is for. Businesses are to be there to provide goods and services. Uh, Justin, uh, what's your take on yeah, this? Because I, I, you a know, lot you of them much smarter than I. I mean, Joe and Terry and Bruce, but Disney has been political for a long time. <laughs> Let's yeah. not pretend that they just got into the business of being political. They were right. giving donations to Republicans right. uh, like Governor DeSantis, and, and they have been involved in many different uh, political movements in their time. So let's, I love that Disney's some sort of victim or at the other end, some sort of aggressor the first time they've ever gotten into politics. They're playing the game just like DeSantis is playing the game, just like everyone's playing the game. So first off, them deciding to do this, you know, Disney is a major, major company with a lot of different tentacles and a lot of different spaces. In the case of Florida, they are, they are what? I think they're the number one corporation in the state of Florida, right? I mean, they're, they're, they are, they drive the economy. There. Yes, they are. And, they, just, and Justin, right. I, I do have to, I, we do have to pause right now. We've got some breaks coming up. And when we continue, we will continue with our guests. I'm Bruce Dumont. You're listening to Beyond the Beltway, coast to coast and border to border on beyondthebeltway.com. It's a bully. But we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. 
Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Bruce Dumont back. We continue with our discussion. And, uh, uh, Justin, you were making a point, but I want to kind of expand on it at the moment. And that is, uh, if, if you are a gay employee of Disney, okay, you have a job, and you're working in a state, uh, and the leaders of that state, the legislative, they have decided that it is not a good idea for a student who is in kindergarten to third grade to learn about either transgender-related issues or, or sexual-oriented issues. Um, yeah. When you're an employee, do you really have any right to question the school district and what they teach to children, especially if you might not even have children? Is this, you know, I would say that Absolutely, that's what that Disney wants, you know, puts in the press release, what they put out. But Disney plays to a large LGBTQ plus audience. There's a lot of people coming to the theme park that may be, uh, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender, yeah. what have you. And and that plays a big role in what Disney is trying to convey to not just their employees, but to their families and to everybody around right. the country to say everybody is welcome. Open here. Everybody is Florida welcome. went in a different direction. We're not. And I think that's a smart business decision for them because there's a lot of uh, people who might be in the north, uh, blue states, other places that feel like Florida is not open for business. And that's trouble for a company like Disney that needs people to travel for tourists. Do do gays have to be more open about uh, about what opposition might exist out there to uh, their their uh, their agenda? Or is the pressure or or is the pressure such that uh, you you really are are not going to be open to anyone who has a differing view for someone that is active in the gay and lesbian community. You you can't accept that somebody else uh, disagrees with your lifestyle, and so uh, they are they are trapped in a an almost a myopic 
response to issues like this, and they they uh, they paint themselves into a corner, and uh, and and they be they become victims of smart politicians who know how to play a crowd. Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. It's a political fight, and it, you know, and it's it's usually that the uh, members of the LGBTQ uh, community are going to vote Democrat. They're going to be uh, more liberal sure. in their standing. So th- there's there's a definite calculus to this by the governor and and the state of Florida. The issue is though, at the end of the day, that when you're talking about a a, a bill that is essentially um, saying you can't talk about sexuality to kids uh, up to third grade usually that's not happening. And if it is happening, it's happening in the other direction. It's happening for cisgendered uh, normative people who essentially like uh, a teacher says to another, to a student, is that your boyfriend? Is that your girlfriend? Uh, just sort of goes to straight normative practices. And and I think that I can understand if I were part of the LGBTQ community, that that is uh, somewhat offensive, that that's okay, but talking about being gay is not, and that and that to me is I think at the at where you hear the LGBTQ community coming from, and why there's so much pushback on this being called woke when it's really just about human relations and human rights. Uh, Terry, uh, would you weigh in on that same uh, same question as to how uh, how each side is playing this issue uh, to their strengths and uh, to their political benefit? With all due respect to Justin, I don't think this is, uh, as he just said, first of all, Illinois just passed a bill uh, recently to teach sexual ed from kindergarten uh, on up at different stages. When uh, State Representative Tony McCombie on the floor read what was in the bill to the bill sponsor, uh, I used that bite and YouTube came back and said, you cannot get advertising on this segment of your show because of that bite that is offensive. And so YouTube is saying, you're crossing the line here. And this is what we're supposed to be teaching to uh, K through, uh, you know, first, second and third grade kids. I have as one of my provisions running for Congress that we're not we ought to not teach sexual education from K through third grade. You know, let kids be innocent. I I think I got a lecture in the fifth grade. We've done this for years. Now, relative to Disney and all that, you know, we don't have a gay Mickey Mouse and we don't have a lesbian Minnie Mouse. That's not the brand of Disney. And what the parents are saying is, come on. I mean, we grew up with Disney, Mary Poppins and all the rest. It was wholesome fare. This is not the place for a pool of politics, especially in the realm of sexuality, when we want to bring our children to a theme park on vacation where they can just be kids and, and enjoy that. There might be places, or there are places, and, and I, what I'm saying is not anti-gay in any way at all. What I am saying is there's a time and a place for conversations. Disneyland's theme park should not be one of those places for the parents uh, or for, I would argue, is good business. And recently when they had, uh, I think it was Cinderella in a parade down there, mm-hmm. waving a, a rainbow flag from what I saw in press reports, uh, the parents just said, forget this, and, and left. And we saw how many people had ditched Disney uh, streaming as a response. So, you know, this is neither good politics nor good business. Joe Morris. On the cultural side of the ledger, sexuality has gotten to the point of being oppressive both heterosexual, heteronormative sexuality, it, it's everywhere. 
uh, in commerce and, and uh, in culture, and, and so is hetero, uh, homosexual sexuality. And homosexual, homosexual sexuality, for various reasons in our culture, is being pushed, and it's being pushed on people's attention, is being demanded at younger and younger ages and so forth, and people are rebelling. Pushed by? By, by homosexual activists who, who are seeking uh, the approbation of society at large, and want that, that approbation to begin with the knowledge and attitudes of younger and younger children. And who's backing that thought, in your view? I'm sorry, who's, who, who, is back, who, who, is, who is the muscle behind this attitude uh, from uh, uh, the gay and lesbian community? Uh, w- w- well, corporations, media, who, who's leading? Does, does media lead the corporate involvement? That no, no, no. They, they, Twitter they, involvement. No. I mean, how does this all happen? Well, the, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there are some, uh, for, for some players in the game, there is political or economic advantage, mm-hmm. uh, to be sure. But, 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 but lying behind it, I'm, I'm, I think are, are activists with direct personal, um, normative sexual interests uh, in, in having validation uh, of an orientation, mm-hmm. and that's a whole other other debate. Uh, but, but what? What Disney offers to so many people in a cultural sense is a is a universal safe space, someplace you can go without worrying about sexuality and not being thrown in your face, um, and, and where challenges to um, uh, the innocence of childhood are not thrown in your face. You can you know, find some escape mm-hmm. from escape from that. What's fascinating about this is is that is that all we, we I think we can sit back and, and understand the politics that are being played by homosexual activists, the LGBTQ community on the one hand, the politics that are being played by Governor DeSantis and his allies, on the other hand, the interests that they're trying to vindicate, mm-hmm. uh, the goals that, that they have, and, and by their lights, they're playing the political game probably fairly well. The people who completely screwed it up is Disney. Uh, D- yeah. D- D- Disney ends up from this making no friends, making enemies everywhere. The, 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 the chief executive of Disney started out trying to say, we're going to sit this one out. He, he said that in a very clumsy way mm-hmm. and got pushback from, uh, from some segments of his stakeholders, employees and others. Uh, he, he did not test the waters of other stakeholders who had opposite points of view. He simply re- caved. He reacted to them, mm-hmm. assuaged their concerns, not realizing that he was inviting blowback from all kinds of other stakeholders and so forth. So the truly bad political players in this game are the, exe- are the executives of Disney. Is let, the, let, me, let me step back and give you a completely yeah. different example involving a completely different set of political interests, yeah. and, and, and that's Major League Baseball. Remember last year, right. uh, Georgia is adopting some, some, some legislative reforms regarding how elections are conducted in Georgia. The Democratic Party at the national level condemns this and says this is trying to keep people from voting. It's racist and so on right. and so forth. The Joe Biden speeches, the, the Jim Crow revis- re- re- revived yeah. and so forth. The facts of the matter, nobody's paying attention to the facts of the matter. The facts of the matter is that Georgia's laws with respect to access to the ballot are still easier than those in Democratic states like Joe Biden's Delaware and New York. Nobody's read the... (laughs) So the commissioner of baseball (coughs) decides that it is his business to punish the state of Georgia for considering this kind of electoral reform, pulling the all-star game out of Georgia and carting it off to to Colorado. Because he allegedly was hearing pressure from Coca-Cola and Delta and other major companies in Georgia because the, the those that oppose this were breathing down their neck and they had to decide, okay, what am I, I mean, if, if you're selling Coca-Cola, okay, do I want to sell Coca-Cola to everybody or am I going to cut, cut off those 
that may be perceived to be uh, racist or not interested in expanding voting rights or black voters. What if you have to make that decision? It's, it's, if you have it, to make the, the decision, okay, are, is Coca-Cola primarily a black product or is it a white product? It's a product for the, the attitude well, of the business ought to, be, it ought to be a product for everybody, in which case, in which case the question of reform of voting laws is outside their wheelhouse. They don't have a position. They shouldn't have a position on it. And they shouldn't put themselves in a position where they're forced to take a position. Should they have had a position on that, uh, Justin? I mean, when they well, get involved, I mean, it's all about money. Some... And if Coca-Cola is coming in saying, "Listen, we've 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 looked at the data, and we're going to lose customers uh, uh, based on how uh, the state is handling their election rights, and we don't want to be involved in that," then and we don't want to. Uh, give sponsorship to someone who is involved in that. If I'm a, share, world, I'm a shareholder, I say, show me, show me those data. I don't believe thing. it. There, there is a monster amount of money being made by Disney in the LGBTQ community. Yes, it, it, they fit, it is a safe space for the gay and lesbian communities, transgender communities in America and the world. And so, losing that because they don't take a stand on something that they that that community feels is um, is uh, you know uh, offensive. You can see well, why Disney put. Well, they stood up because they don't want to lose that money. They also used to. There also used to be gay days, right? Specific days, just for gays. Anyway, but that's not. That's not. Can't do that anymore. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly from Beyond the Beltway. Thanks for joining us tonight. One eight hundred seven two three eight two eight nine. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy. Your football buddy. Or you, your best man. Your worst man. You, your dog walker. Your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. 
We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back at Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much. Don't forget the flashback segment of past broadcasts. You can find it at the beyondthebeltway.com website. And again, uh, these we dip into the archives of uh, almost 45 years of programming, and we present something that we think uh, will be of interest to you. This week is the discussion uh, that took place con- in a contemporary way uh, around the uh, uh, the. Uh, confirmation of Clarence Thomas to the United States Supreme Court. Uh, Let's take a moment now and let each of our guests take a moment to describe themselves. And Terry, we're going to begin with you. Give us a little biographical thing about uh, what you've done in the past and uh, then uh, briefly about your candidacy uh, for the Republican nomination in the 13th District of Illinois. Well, thanks, Bruce. I've uh... I went to Mizzou and had a dual major in broadcasting and poli-sci, but I was sidetracked uh, when my father died when I was in college, and I ended up, long story short, running a printing business for a decade. Now, I later got back into journalism, working both at C-SPAN covering Congress and local television news here in central Illinois before starting the Illinois Channel about 20 years ago, the Illinois Channel being more or less like the C-SPAN of Illinois. I always thought that my having run a business and uh, employed people and had to meet a payroll and make sales and deal with the issues in manufacturing uh, made me a much much better journalist because I kind of went kicking and screaming along the way, becoming financially literate. And one of the criticisms I would have of uh, our journalism schools, among others, is that uh, as well as our just our in our grade schools, we never teach how the economy works and yet i could say from having covered uh government for the better part of 30 years about 90 percent of what government does is deal with financial issues it's the old uh, guns or butter kind of debate we can talk about things like gun rights or gay marriage and the rest uh these get a lot of attention but they're not really the preponderance of what government is about And for a lot of citizens, unfortunately, when we start talking about economic issues, it just flies over their head and they really can't follow Mm -hmm. whether we should have a tax cut or not. They don't know the difference uh, between monetary policy and fiscal policy. uh, Both of of those right now are very much at play in our national debate. Let me ask you this question. Terry, Terry, let me stop you. On the issues of having an open border, you got 100,000 people dying of uh, fentanyl poisoning over the last 18 months and just some of the other crazy things without going into each of them. Terry, I just found it, uh, I just couldn't sit on the sidelines anymore as a nonpartisan when the country was going down the hill. Let me just Let's fade Terry down because Terry, uh, Terry doesn't have, he doesn't have headsets, so he 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 uh, filibustered a little bit. 
<laughs> okay. Sorry. That's okay. Uh, quick question. Could be a short answer to this. Some of your critics have said continuing to, to run Illinois Channel and having access to the media while you're still a candidate is unfair. Give me the short version to that question and that challenge. The way I'm handling it is I'm not putting myself on the air since I'm a candidate. I'm, okay. I'm not doing the interviews I normally would do. Uh, I'm going to put my opinions at all on a separate channel. That's my campaign YouTube channel. Uh, so I'm covering events. Uh, I'm going to cover on Monday night a gubernatorial debate, but I'm behind the camera. Uh, okay. You know, if I okay. have Good a press point. conference from the governor or the president and they're just you know, having their okay. press conference, I'm, okay. I'm just covering it just like CNN. Okay, good point. Uh, Justin Kaufman, to, to my knowledge, you are not running for anything at the moment. <laughs> but uh, speaking of uh, keeping uh, your track of uh, track of what's going on, uh, you you are a, a well-known uh, radio personality in the Chicagoland area. Yeah. Uh, but recently you've been hired as a reporter for Axios to cover what transpires in Chicago. So for those... Uh, who know want a little bit more about your background? Uh, take a moment and do it. Sure. I, uh, you know, I had, I had hosted uh, talk shows in Chicago for a number of years, including at WGN, uh, where I was uh, uh, on at night. I uh, revived for for a little bit of time the uh, Extension 720, the Milt Rosenberg show that was mm -hmm. uh, such a highlight here in Chicago for years. Mm -hmm. Moved on from WGN uh, and ended up. I just did a podcast on uh, Mike Madigan for the Better Government Association and ended up with axios which is a, a great outfit out of um dc and they are they they're making it very clear they want to invest in local journalism mm -hmm. and so myself and monica ang who's under a long time trusted uh, chicago journalist write a email newsletter every morning and cover chicago the and, way we want to cover it and to and, those uh, it comes out every morning justin to those uh, who listen to this program who know there are numerous new media uh, operations in this country uh, Axios is one of them. Uh, yep. A lot of them feel that all of the new crop are all left of center, and you're not going to find a, an objective or a conservative perspective. Uh, what do you say about those who level that against Axios? Well, I think you get it's on both sides. I mean, as someone who who works out of Chicago, you know, we don't have to to, to handle that as much as uh, you know covering local news and things of that nature, but. Yeah, if you're if you're in uh, channels uh, on the on the right, they'll say it's too liberal. If you're in liberal channels, they'll say it's too conservative. And that's always a good marking of a of a good journalistic outfit uh, that has a, a sort of uh, complainers on both sides of the aisle. Mm -hmm. Joe Morris, give us the uh, Cliff Notes version of your background. Oh, I, in in the in the first hour, uh, as a as a practicing <clears throat> lawyer who takes his practice very seriously, I was burnishing my First Amendment credentials. Let me say that as a, as, a, as, as a lawyer, I do spend a lot of time representing and advising people in the media, that is uh, reporters, journalists, editors, publishers, broadcasters, and so forth. That's an important part of what I do. Okay. Uh, but I probably here should burnish my, my political credentials. Um, I have been a candidate for public office. I was a candidate, the nominee of my party, the Republican Party, president of the Cook County Board way back in 1994. It's got half a million votes. It's a big I lost, joke. I lost the election. Um, it it's a big a, job. I, did, I didn't mean it was a big joke. I meant to say it's a big job. You're, you're forgiven. <laughs> you're, it is a big It is a big job, and, and, and I think it was a, a campaign that still has reverberations in terms of issues that I, that I was raising. Joe, weren't you the, weren't you, wasn't it your case uh, against uh, Rahm Emanuel about uh, uh, residency in uh, Illinois yeah. or in Chicago? Well, my case was not against Rahm Emanuel. It 
wearing another hat. I, one of my one of my fields of expertise is election law, and I sit as a nonpartisan neutral for the Chicago Board of Election Commissioners as a hearing officer, I mean, in fact, an administrative judge, hearing and deciding ballot access cases. I was the judge, the hearing officer in Rahm Emanuel's case. That case was tried yeah, in front of was. me. Yeah, right. I, I I was the one who heard the evidence and rendered the initial decision that was ultimately affirmed seven to nothing, I might add, by the Supreme Court of Illinois, uh, holding that he was uh, a resident. Okay. Eight years later, I also had the um, the Lori Lightfoot case when Tony Breckwinkel challenged Lori Lightwood Lori Lightfoot's uh, nomination papers. The the issue there was whether or not she had enough signatures. Fairly garden variety case. She had enough signatures. I held that she she should get on the ballot. So forth. Okay. But I've been I've been an activist as as a Republican, overt, you know, no false flags for the for my entire adult life. I believe that uh, Chris, uh, or sorry, Fritz has just he sent me a signal. Uh, that was the longest segment ever in reintroducing our guests, I believe. I think we set a world indoor record for that. Uh, let's go to David. He's a regular listener out there in San Francisco. Go ahead. You're on the air, David. Oh, thanks, Bruce. Uh, a few minutes ago, I think it was Terry that was talking about the education uh, that was uh, economics, uh, e economic education that was yes. being um, limited. And uh, noticing the other day that uh, the state of Florida has basically banned, uh, was it 57 different math books? Because they claimed that there were uh, critical race theory phrases in them, just outrageously stupid uh, to outlaw 57 different textbooks. But that means that the whole state of Florida is going to be basically without economics or math textbooks for the next uh, number of school years. So I'm just wondering, uh, it, it smells like what's going on with the whether it's Disney or these other corporations making plays in Florida, whether the, the old uh, Mussolini concept of the corporate state, where the corporations decide how uh, the government is run and the people uh, have to uh, basically live by whatever the corporations determine. And uh, when you start seeing there was a recent Supreme Court ruling on uh, mask mandates, and the Supreme Court said that the public, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, the uh, uh, health departments, World Health Organization, could not dis uh, decide on mask mandates, but that corporations could. And then when uh, Disney decides to uh, uh, make that decision, the uh, government of Florida decides to come down on Disney. So it's as if the corporate state can't even decide which lie to live by. And uh, so I'm just wondering if your uh, guests have any, uh, any knowledge uh, of this sort of uh, <laughs> internecine warfare or whether there's a... Terry. Let's ask Terry if he's ever heard of it. Terry, any response to uh, David from San Francisco? Well, I wouldn't phrase it quite the way that, that David said. Let me, I don't know about the textbooks. I, th you know, I think the thing is we should just have math books uh, and, and leave the politics out of them. Uh, that said, you know, one of the articles, let's let's go to uh, Twitter, which is in the news, obviously, with mm -hmm. Elon Musk and all that right. going on, as we know. And so the issue as well, they're a private corporation. They can uh, do what they want. The issue, as I see it, is not necessarily carte blanche. You know, about 60 years ago, we had uh, some black college students doing sit-ins in Nashville at a lunch counter. And uh, 
that was a private business. And they said, we're not going to serve blacks. Should we have said, well, okay, they, they can decide who they're going to serve. No, because that violates the constitutional rights of those citizens. I think Twitter is in violation along those lines. You can be a private business, but you can't just operate in any old way. You can't have open discrimination against, uh, con- in this case, conservatives. Uh, and and just or keep a, them or off a, and or say a, the or president a former, can go on or a former can. former president of the United States. Uh, we do have Are to they pause. really conservatives? One second, we've got to say farewell to you because we have breaks coming up. In fact, I think there's one coming up right now. Jill, why don't you tell the class what you did this weekend? Well, my dad and I went in search of some magical minnows and found a zillion of them in the stream from our lookout rock. Then my sister and I escaped from an evil slug king and went back to my super twig fort for safety. Then we told stories till it got dark and the Big Dipper led us all the way home. Where were you, Jill? We went to the forest. It's not that far away. Ask your parents to take you and your friends to the forest this week. It's closer than you think. Check out discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. Song again. Here's that song again. For the hundredth time today. Here's that song again. It's gonna be stuck in your head all day. Here's that song again. It will make you cray cray. You love your kids enough to watch that TV show a bajillion times. Love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy. Or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. (gasps) Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
This is our last segment, and uh, I'd like to just say for anyone listening around the country or watching uh, the YouTube or Facebook, I'd like to get a sense of how many of you out there will turn off and not support Disney. You won't go to Disney World anymore because you're really ticked off at the Disney Corporation. Just drop me a line. Again, uh, go, to the, go to the website, uh, beyondthebeltway.com, and uh, weigh in on that, uh, and uh, I'd like to know how you feel. Because Chris, that also some people Marvel are, huh? and Star Wars because Disney owns those <laughs> those, uh, those huge uh, corporations. Well, but yes, that's right, and they and they own a they own a network, and uh, you know that's not a good idea to uh, pick yeah. a fight with someone that owns the uh, newspaper or the ink. But uh, uh, at least with Disney, that there'll be a coverage of that. They will try to be fair in that discussion. But again, uh, to me, this looks like an issue, Terry that is going to be used by a lot of Republican governors all over the United States because they see the issue of parental rights as uh, as a hot-button issue, as one that, uh, you know, it paid dividends in, in uh, Virginia, and it may be paying dividends in Florida, and other states and other governors are picking up on this, on this uh, uh, cultural issue which also basically, maybe for the first time ever, takes the education issue and makes it a viable uh, weapon to be used by Republicans, even though they've been trying to do it for 30 years. I agree, but it's not limited to governors. I mean, I myself have put on some literature, as I said earlier, right. uh, no sex education at the early ages. And uh, one of my um, fellow Republicans running in the race uh, said that we ought to have a parental bill of rights. These are going to be echoed around the country. Um, so, yeah, it's very much going to be. And we saw it, as you say, with Glenn Youngkin winning the governorship in Virginia. This is serious fallout uh, from, mm -hmm. from the pandemic and the human experiences during the pandemic. Right. Uh, kids were home, stuck at home and were attending school via Zoom or similar platforms on their computers. Mom and dad are sitting in the back of the room or around the corner or down the hall, and they're listening and seeing what, what kind of instruction they're getting from their schools, and parents by the millions were horrified, not just because of these, not just because of these, these cultural hot points, these flashpoints, although certainly because of that. I mean, they, they saw stuff that horrified them. But I, I think parent, parents woke up to the fact that there was, there was very serious question about the quality of instruction. Uh, were, kids were not getting the kinds of education that parents hoped or thought that they were. If, if and, and so that, that is, that's you know, awakened a sleeping giant. Joe, what if parents just don't have the understanding, they don't have the desire to teach their children about the birds and the bees? Should there be uh, some other entity, and I would argue public education, should there be some other entity that takes it on their as part of their mission to explain this to uh, children that don't have parents that should do that. Justin, your reaction to that? Uh, you know, I've got a 14-year-old son. I mean, at, at a certain point, you know, there is sex education classes at Chicago Public Schools where he goes, and they're not classes that are about indoctrinating anything or talking about uh, what your, your gender identity or your sexual identity is. It's a, it's a lot of bare-bones conversations about STDs, about safe sex, about pregnancies, about uh, the things that are important for, for young minds to understand when it comes to things that, that are a little bit taboo. Justin, and, if, you're, if, you're not, if, you're not seeing, if you're not seeing the gender identity elements of the, that curriculum, you're not looking hard enough, because they're there. I've seen them. I mean, they're in the curriculum. Uh, it's fascinating to me that in this discussion so far tonight, 
Uh, what does it? What does that mean to you, Joe? What is? What does that mean? Where, Explain. Where I don't understand what that means. To say gender identity stuff is in the curriculum at CPS. What it means is to say to children of very tender years, uh, you, 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 the fact that you are a biological boy. I mean, you put this in the in words that little kids can understand. The fact that you're a biological boy or girl does not mean that you have to be a biological boy or girl all your life. You can pick your own identity. You can decide your you can decide your orientation or your. Where is that? Where is that found in the curriculum right now? What what course would have that language that you just? That's that's that, that, that the shocking thing. Those kind of discussions, those kind of discussions are, are seen across courses, not just in courses. And so I guess I guess what focus, I would ask Joe focus is on that, sexuality. And, and I just I wonder, and I hate to tell, I don't want to be like Bruce to be a talk show host, but but that's the fundamental problem is that you believe that the public education should not be telling kids that that they could be. No, something. no, I, I I'm I'm saying there there are much broader problems with education. It's it's Bruce who keeps bringing us back to sex. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that, that, that parents were awakened to the poor quality of education across the board. I, I find it fascinating that we, when we come to the, the question of sex, and Bruce asked the question, when you have parents who are not yeah. capable, when you have parents who are not capable of discussing sex with their children, that's, well, that's sad because that is a, a core parental duty, it seems to me. A core parental function is talking about sex. But, but let's also, but Joe, let's, but pay, also, let's, I want to also, let's, let's acknowledge that we're all together here. Not every parent or group of parents are responsible parents. They may not teach their children about anything. They may not teach them to brush their teeth every day, to, to wipe themselves when they go to the bathroom. I mean, there are really bad parents. And we see, by the way, we see the results of bad parenting every night in Chicago when we learn about all the, the shootings. This, that this is happening. absolutely true. And if, and if you're the CEO of McDonald's and you point that out, you, 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 somebody wants your head on a platter. Right, which and is the, a and mistake. The, and, 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 the, and the next step, uh, of course, is to demand public licensing and regulation of parenting and so forth. This is, this is an incredible slippery slope. Look where our society is, however. We, we used to have institutions that backstopped parents and dealt precisely with kinds of questions that were too, too, too difficult for some parents Churches. to deal with. Churches, synagogues, mosques. They haven't surfaced in our conversation up to now. For yeah, some, re- for some but, reason, but, we... For some reason, the, in Joe, the modern age, we insist, Justin, we insist. Very stereotypical and very discriminatory organizations. And, 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 they and, said and, that gay people didn't exist. Look they, at where we are. Look, look where we are. We, when you start saying there are institutions that backed our public education. They, they didn't back our public education. They backed parents. Parents, or parents, parents, or and, parents. And parents and religious institutions were and are more important than public schooling. One at a time, Justin, go to you, and then I want to go to Terry. I think the core issue is that, you know, as I think for the where we are in 2022 and, and it's different than we were as, as Terry pointed out in, in the sixties and civil rights union at, at a certain point, we are, we are, we are becoming a society that, that is tolerable of other people in the way they live their lives and, and who they are and everyone should be at the table and we can't have conversations that, that and why is that not reflected in religious institutions too? Why not, why not in religious institutions too? On that note, we That's are religious bigotry on that moment on that moment we are out of time joe morris thank you very much our conservative guest this evening terry martin candidate in the republican illinois 13th district and that primary is coming up on the 28th of june and justin kaufman joins us he is the axios reporter in chicago 45 over 92 180 over 111 182 over 100 and i had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand 
including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor, check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.